High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today we're going back to December 1979, Los Angeles. Hollywood was preoccupied by the premieres of new movies like Kramer vs. Kramer and 1941. Local punk bands X and The Germs played a big show downtown with the British band The Fall. And a few blocks away from that, at the Shrine Auditorium, Frank Sinatra was recording a 10-minute song about visiting outer space. Maybe when I get to Venus I will never be lonely again So that is an excerpt from What Time Does the Next Miracle Leave, the first track on the third disc of a three-record set, which Frank Sinatra recorded in 1979 and released in 1980, called Trilogy, Past, Present, and Future. Jupiter makes with the rain, Saturn makes with the crops, a nicer trade was never made and hopefully never stops. Saturn's fields are dry, Jupiter won't stay fat, so Jupiter leaves his faucets on, and that is 
first disc of the trilogy, called The Past, is pretty self-explanatory. Sinatra sings old standards, hits mostly from the 1930s and 40s, with new big band-style arrangements by Billy May. There may be trouble ahead. The Present, arranged by Don Costa, is somewhat more loosely defined. It was designed to showcase the chairman of the board's renditions of songs from the rock and roll era, ranging from Elvis's Love Me Tender to Billy Joel's Just the Way You Are. It also includes Sinatra's first recording of what would become a signature song in his later years, New York, New York, which up to that point was best known as Liza Minnelli's closing number in Martin Scorsese's box office disaster of the same name. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. So that's disc one and disc two, the past and the present. And then there's disc three, the future. The future consists of a six-song cycle, running about 40 minutes. It begins with the 10-minute-long What Time Does the Next Miracle Leave, in which Sinatra visits all of the planets, including the not-yet-downgraded Pluto. Pluto is a rotten place, an evil misbegotten place. It's Hades. Filled with graduates of the pen, a sordid flock of criminal men and ladies. Ladies, 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 ladies. In song two, called World War None, he sings of wanting to leave a peaceful world to the next generation. There always comes a time when a man has to think of the future. Has to think of his children And the world they will live in Then there's a three-part song called The Future, in which Frank looks forward to upcoming innovations And also looks back at his 60-something years on the planet, wistfully, in a section called I've Been There. If the boy is sulking and the girl is close to tears, I know it doesn't matter who is right or who started the fight. I've been there. Finally, there's Before the Music Ends, in which Sinatra acknowledges that his time is running out. I reached the age of 40 somewhat sooner than expected, living at a fairly hectic pace. And when I count the years that I have happily collected, the future shows its apprehensive face.
Believe it or not, the trilogy was a huge hit when it was released in 1980. It went gold in a couple of weeks, which was unheard of for a triple record, even allowing that most of the sales probably owed to the smash success of New York, New York. It seems a little weird that today, 35 years on, this album has been apparently totally forgotten. Well, okay, it's not that hard to see why the past or the present would have been forgotten. Within Sinatra's canon of work, those recordings are pretty forgettable. But the future is another story, because it's just such a total oddity. When I tell people about it, they don't always seem to immediately believe that I'm being straight with them. They think I'm fucking with them, that this must be something The Onion invented, or maybe it's a Will Ferrell-era bit from Saturday Night Live. But really, the future is real. And it's not even out of print or hard to get. You can buy it on iTunes. And it's actually kind of amazing. What I wanted to know is why does the future exist? And how come nobody seems to know about it? Join us, won't you? As we revisit that time when Frank Sinatra took a deep, dark look into the future. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. The future was the brainchild of Gordon Jenkins. Jenkins was an arranger and composer who first worked with Sinatra in the 50s. He arranged Sinatra's 1957 album No One Cares, a super dark collection of saloon ballads like Stormy Weather and I Can't Get Started. Life's aboard. The world is my oyster no more. These were what Sinatra, who was in the midst of a torturous final breakup with Ava Gardner in 1957, would call suicide songs. And Jenkins had a gift for them. He loved a good string section or even a bad string section. In fact, some of Jenkins' critics have described his flair for the melodramatic as less of an asset than an Achilles heel. In 1966, Jenkins won a Grammy for arranging Sinatra's version of It Was a Very Good Year. When I was 17 
1959, almost 20 years to the date before they recorded The Future, Gordon Jenkins wrote Frank Sinatra a letter, telling him that he wanted to write an orchestral piece called The Sinatra Story. It would be about 30 minutes long, Jenkins figured, and it would aim to encapsulate Sinatra's entire life and times in song. I feel I can do this better than anyone, Jenkins wrote, due to the fact that I believe that in spite of your fame and all, you are about the most sad of all people, in a neck and neck race with me. Cut to 1979. Sinatra's performing in Vegas, and he hadn't recorded a studio album in five years. Jenkins and producer Sonny Burke came to see him. They asked Sinatra, why aren't you recording? You know damn well why, he told them. Because there's a lot of garbage out there. Nobody's writing songs for me, and I don't know what to do about it. So Jenkins put on a tape he had made, a demo he had recorded in his own home, with six singers and a synthesizer. From the sound of it, he had never given up on the idea of telling the Sinatra story. And stop at the pool room for a beer And sadly say to myself, I don't know anybody Sinatra was blown away. He felt like Jenkins had written something that really understood him. Sinatra wondered if Jenkins had been secretly taking notes for 35 years. And Sinatra was primed in that moment for this kind of introspection. Well, maybe he was always primed for it. Way back in the 50s, he famously described himself as an 18-carat manic depressive. Pete Hamill, who would later write a small book called Why Sinatra Matters, he went out drinking with Sinatra one night in 1974. Sinatra was between marriages and apparently spending a lot of nights in saloons with his cronies and assorted young women, holding court in booths at New York bars patrolled by the junior varsity of the mafia. After all the hangers-on went home that night, Hamill found himself in the back of Sinatra's limo, just the two of them. Sinatra told the chauffeur to just drive around for a while. You think some people are smart and they turn out dumb, he said. You think they're straight, they turn out crooked. You like people, and they die on you. I go to too many goddamn funerals these days. And women, he laughed. I don't know what the hell to make of them. Maybe that's what it's all about, Sinatra concluded. Maybe all that happens is you get older, and you know less. By the late 70s, Sinatra had hooked up with his fourth wife the former Barbara Marks, ex-wife of Zeppo. But it's not like he was getting any younger. And producer Sonny Burke was proposing that Jenkins' suite of songs act as the grand finale to a trilogy of records, which would allow Sinatra to revisit the standards of his relative youth, put his unique stamp on music of the post-Elvis era, and finally, look forward into the unknown. Sinatra formulated the game plan for the past over a long Palm Springs weekend with his close advisors. Arranger Billy May, Sonny Burke, Sinatra conciliary Sarge Weiss, Jimmy Van Housen, and Gordon Jenkins. 
Song selection for the present seems to have been somewhat more haphazard. It's the spottiest disc of the three. The unquestionable highlight is Sinatra's cover of Something by the Beatles, one song from the rock era that Old Blue Eyes genuinely loved. Something in the way she moves Attracts me like no other lover Here's a sidebar. In the midst of her breakup with Sinatra in 1968, Mia Farrow went to India to study with the Maharishi. The Beatles were there too. The band then went back to London to record the White Album. They were reinvigorated by the experience in India, but also somewhat disillusioned by the Maharishi himself. John Lennon alleged that he had seen the Maharishi make unwanted sexual advances on Mia Farrow, a scandal on which Lennon based the song Sexy Sadie. Sexy Sadie Lennon wrote another song, Dear Prudence, for Mia's sister, who was also on the trip. George Harrison, the Beatle who had been the most reluctant to leave India, used a break in the White Album sessions to write another song, a song that the band wouldn't record right away. That song was something. Now, okay, this is probably total coincidence. The fact that Frank Sinatra recorded this Beatles song in 1979 probably has nothing to do with the dissolution of his marriage to Mia Farrow over a decade before that. Even if, as Mia has recently said, the two of them never really broke up and continued to see each other until Sinatra's death. That said, Sinatra's recording of something is amazing in part because when you listen to him sing about not leaving a lover... You're so aware of all of the times in which he did leave, or more crucially, was left behind. Anyway, the future was really the grand production. It definitely represented the most amount of work for Sinatra, who, with no previous familiarity with these songs, had to learn them all from scratch, which meant spending hours and days working through them with his pianist, Vincent Falcone, in Sinatra's Beverly Hills home. And when it came down to arranging the thing, Gordon Jenkins thought big, because that's what Gordon Jenkins was all about. Jenkins basically invented the concept album. Listen, all you New Yorkers, there's a rumor going round that some of you good people want to leave this town. But you'd better consult with me before you go. Yeah? Back in the 1940s, as a musical director for NBC Radio, he created a series of 10-minute so-called operas, basically slightly narrativized medleys of standard songs with new lyrics. Then, in 1945, he composed a song cycle called Manhattan Tower. But there was never much demand for this kind of stuff, and Jenkins mostly kept busy with other projects. Scoring the first 3D feature, Buona Devil, in 1952. Recording an album of standards for Harry Nilsson in 1973. Around the time they were working on the trilogy, Jenkins was starting to exhibit symptoms of ALS, also called Lou Gehrig's disease, which would lead to his death in 1984. Whether he knew it at the time or not, the future offered more than just an opportunity to follow through on the dream he had been harboring, at least since writing that letter to Sinatra in 1959. The future would be Jenkins' last chance to mount a concept recording on a massive scale. And he didn't hold back. 
Jenkins hired over 100 musicians for the two-day recording session, including, amongst other things, 50 singers, a full-string section, four bassoons, and a single guitar. There were so many players that they couldn't fit into any recording studio in all of Los Angeles. And that's why they rented out The Shrine, a frequent venue for the Academy Awards, which also, for 33 years, doubled as the home court of the University of Southern California's basketball team. The future was recorded here old school, meaning live, which was problematic given that the smallest shift of a pair of legs in one of the Shrine's bleacher seats could cause enough of a reverberation to spoil a take. That they got through it in just two days now seems incredible. But then a lot of things about this album, when looking back from the vantage of today, seem totally incredible. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. This is how the future begins. My name is Francis Albert. songs mostly after dark mostly in saloons I've had some very good years This may be the nuttiest thing about the whole project of the future At the very beginning of this totally baroque musical fantasy Frank Sinatra introduces himself to us as though we don't know it's him and thereby brands everything to come as though it's first-person autobiography. The rest of the album is, admittedly, bloated and strange and pretentious at times, but it's also sometimes wry and funny and, well, frank, sometimes in a sort of pedestrian way that's even more charming. This is what happens after a female voice asks Sinatra how he'll know that he's arrived in heaven rather than hell. How will I know? I They meet me at the station With a cheese and tomato pizza Well done And a little red wine And this is from the final movement called Before the Music Ends in which Sinatra thanks Beethoven, Verdi, and Puccini for providing him with inspiration before heading straight for the craps table. I'd like to make one more charge at Vegas. You 
won't find me at that idiot wheel that spins and spins and spins. I won't play the slot machine, the management always wins. Not for me the game where the jack is called black. Hand me them dice and stand back. How does the future end? Basically, with Sinatra vowing not to hang it up until the Grim Reaper shows up at his door. And when that cat with a scythe comes tugging at my sleeve, I'll be singing. This grand finale is an example of the kind of thing that makes the future incredibly problematic for some Sinatra fans. On the one hand, it's a fitting end to a self-consciously epic piece of work about life and death and love and outer space. On the other hand, it's in pretty much complete defiance of that sort of down-and-dirty barroom charisma that was, for a lot of people, the draw to Sinatra in the first place. I mean, even at the beginning of this record, he describes himself as just some guy who sings love songs, mostly in saloons. By the end of the record, that some guy has just been completely drowned in myth. Maybe you're wondering why I haven't had a guest on this podcast. A critic or historian who could attest to the future's importance, or maybe lack thereof, or better yet, an eyewitness to its creation. The truth is, it's tough to get anyone to talk on the record about this record. A lot of the people who played key roles in its making are, sadly, dead. I did reach out to someone whose writing I came across in my research, and that person said they didn't want to talk publicly about the trilogy because they just don't like it. And that's not an unpopular stance, particularly amongst Sinatra partisans. Pete Hamill, author of Why Sinatra Matters, referred to the future as, quote, an astonishing lapse in taste. There's no apologizing for the future, wrote Will Friedwald in Sinatra, The Song Is You, calling it, quote, the most spectacular disaster of his recording career. Friedwald suggested Sinatra and Jenkins, quote, blew it by addressing ideas that were at once too grandiloquent and too stupid. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Probably the most famous public criticism came from Jonathan Schwartz. If you live in New York and ever find cause to listen to public radio on the weekends, you've probably heard Jonathan Schwartz's show on WNYC, in which he devotes an hour every Saturday and Sunday to Sinatra recordings, most of them rare and or obscure. Jonathan Schwartz might be Frank Sinatra's most constant public champion. I would say that these days he's definitely the most visible. 
And maybe because of his almost obsessive support of Sinatra, Schwartz is protective of the singer's legacy. Also, Schwartz has never been a fan of Gordon Jenkins. In 2004, Schwartz went on NPR to talk about his memoir, All in Good Time, and Leanne Hansen asked him to reminisce about that time, back in 1980, when the future got him fired. Later on, when you were doing your radio show on WNEW, yeah. um, you played, uh, he had a uh, recording out called Trilogy, mm-hmm. and you weren't really happy with the third one, and boy, he wasn't very happy with what you had to say about it. That's very true. He's also a friend of the man who owned the company that owned the station, a man named John Kluge. Sinatra called up Kluge and said, Rakataka, Rakataka, Rakataka. Kluge called the general manager of WNEW and said, Rakataka, Rakataka, Rakataka. And I got a call from that man who said, Rakataka, Rakataka, you're off the air, Rakataka. Why am I off the air? Sinatra. Well, what do you mean? I, I knew full well. I pretended I didn't know. But I, I had said that the third record of Trilogy was a narcissistic mess. When I first heard it, I just lowered my head in shame, which I essentially said on the radio. Didn't catch his fancy. Now, you should know, the reviews weren't all like this. Billboard and the LA Times both ran raves. More important to Sinatra was that his own friends, men of his generation or older, guys who were closer to the end of their lives than the beginning, They were deeply moved by the future. Sinatra claimed that when he went to see a dying Henry Miller in the hospital, the Tropic of Cancer novelist had a tape of the future playing on a loop by his bed, and that he'd listened to it over and over again, tears streaming down his face. But if there's one reason why the trilogy, and particularly the future, have disappeared from contemporary consciousness, it might be that the people who do the job of reminding us that this kind of thing exists, actually in this case, wish that they could forget about it. A lot of the people who you might think, for reasons of personal or professional association or nepotism, would be partial to the future, they're actually kind of hostily against it. Realizing this forced me to examine my own love of the future more closely. Experts, people with much more extensive knowledge of and experience with Sinatra and with the whole history of music than I could ever hope to accumulate. Pretty much all of them say that this thing is bad. Disastrously bad. How could they be wrong? Could it be that, though I thought I was responding to the future genuinely, I was actually appreciating it ironically? Could it be that I've lost all ability to tell the difference anymore? Yeah, maybe. That could be it. But also, I think I've let go of needing to know or to defend exactly why I like something. I think the future is fascinating for a lot of reasons some of which I can't even precisely define. And yes, sometimes I put it on after dinner when I host dinner parties, and I guess that's exercising a kind of check-this-shit-out impulse, which is basically the same as what drives cinematechs like the Cine Family or anthology film archives to show weird VHS oddities or Super 8 discoveries. You know, except that in this case, it's an enormously overproduced pop record by the greatest male singing star of the 20th century, which was nominated for six Grammys, but lost in the major categories to either Christopher Cross or Kenny Loggins's This Is It. Which, by the way, offers a reminder that even in its present, the future was uniquely out of time. So yeah, maybe I'm guilty of the wrong kind of love for the future. 
but it's not just a party trick for me. I also put it on when I'm doing dishes, or grading papers, or napping off hangovers. I wouldn't play it at all, ever, if I didn't like the way it sounded. And I really, truly do. And because I'm not a custodian of Sinatra's legacy, it doesn't feel like a misstep or a waste of time and tape to me. It feels like this wonderful open secret that at one point I didn't know about, and now I do, and I want to share it. With you. Because come on, there are a lot of places you can go to hear Sinatra sing They All Laughed or New York, New York. There's only one place you can go to hear him singing about how Uranus is heaven. And then to Uranus, Uranus, Uranus is heaven. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You can find show notes and other episodes at youmustrememberthispodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Karina Longworth. And please email any suggestions or questions you might have to karina.longworth at gmail.com. And join us next time for another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. You must remember a kiss is just a kiss, a smile is just a He was a terrific guy. I mean, I mean, you know, was he mean and was he vile? Yeah. But it's not on those records.